You tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. The Washington region was the setting for many of ta Coates' formative experiences. A Baltimore native, a student at Howard University, and a writer for Washington City Paper, Coates is today known for his award-winning coverage of cultural, social, and political issues and his many books. Joining us to discuss what this last year has meant for America and his own upbringing in the Washington region is Tanahasi Coates. Tanahasi, thank you for joining us. Oh, such a pleasure to be here, Kojo. Tanahasi Coates is a journalist and the author of several books, including The Beautiful Struggle Between the World and Me, We Were Eight Years in Power. In 2019, he published his first novel, The Water Dancer. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. If you have questions or comments. So, Tanahasi, we have to start with the latest news. You're writing a reboot of Superman. What can you tell us about this project? I can tell you um, <laughs> about this project uh, quite a bit, in fact, which is that I'm writing a reboot of Superman. <laughs> I, figured, I, figured, I figured that would be all the information you can get from you at this point. Well, we don't, we don't have to talk specifics, but this isn't your first foray into the superhero realm. Tell us about your work on the Black Panther comic book relaunch. Why was this something you wanted to be involved in? Yeah, no, it's not. Um, so... I, I, you know, as a huge comic book, you know, head as a kid, um, loved comics and they were, you know, just important, I think, for expanding my imagination. Believe it or not, a lot of my early vocabulary, um, because comics have such a sense of the melodramatic, they use these huge words. <laughs> and so, you know, you're starting off, I mean, this is seen as, you know, sort of junk literature, which are actually being exposed to, you know, concepts and science, parallel, you know, realities, this, you know, the idea of time, space, all of that is, is sort of in there. Um, and so it had a very, very formative, you know, uh, um, effect on me as, as a writer. And so, you know, when I got the chance for Marvel to um, do Black Panther and, and then later to do Captain Marvel, I mean, it was, it was a dream come true. It was a place that I never thought I would, you know, be. And, um you know, to continue in that vein on, on the big screen is, is, is pretty, you know, pretty big. I, and, I, and I really don't mean to be cagey about the Superman thing. I just, uh, you know, I think one of the things I've learned uh, really, you know, through you know, semi-high profile projects, you know, like Black Panther and Captain America and the interaction, uh, you know, with, with fans, you know, who are so, you know, essential um, to, to the success and, the, you know, the reception of, of the work is you really... You just don't want to be louder than the work, you know what I mean. And when it when yeah. it when it when it comes time for the work to be presented to the world, I really want to not have a situation where I have gotten in the way <laughs> of the reception of the work. I want it to be received as you know as as it is, you know, when when that day comes. You're known as a writer's writer, someone who really cares deeply about the craft. So. Tell us a little bit more about The Water Dancer. This was your first work of fiction published in 2019. Uh, For listeners who might not know, what was this book about and what inspired you to write a novel? Yeah, it's a a book about uh, an enslaved man by the name of Hiram Walker who's living on a Virginia plantation at the start of the book and has a a, a preternatural gift of memory. Uh, and can remember every you know single detail about the world, um, except the thing that's that's most important to him, and that is his mother. <laughs> um, I started writing the Water Dancer. I mean, the thing I always tell people is, it seems like I switched from essays to fiction. But the fact of the matter is, the Water Dancer, at least in its inception, and in terms of how long I've been living with it, is older than Between the World and Me. 
Um, mm. It is older than all except one essay in uh, We Were Eight Years in Power. Um, that, that book really began almost immediately after uh, my first book, The Beautiful Struggle, was published in 2008. And my editors and my agent at the time, you know, suggested that, you know, I, I give uh, fiction a shot. Um, and so it took 10 years and it mostly took 10 years because I had to figure out how to write fiction, um, which is not, you know, as you can imagine, a simple thing. But this wasn't a, um, I mean, it, 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 you know, it may appear that way because of how things were published, but this was not a situation in which, you know, after Between the World and Me, I was like, oh, I think I'll try my hand at fiction. Mm, um, I had been trying to get the water dancer out for years, actually. In fact, I was trying to get it out before Between the Worlds and Me, but I, I just hadn't figured it out at that point. How how did you feel about the reception of the of the novel? Oh, I was overwhelmed. I mean, I am overwhelmed. You know, um, there's a long uh, history of j- journalists or nonfiction writers trying, you know, fiction and. Um, not faring too well. Um, and there's an even longer history of first time novelists not faring too well. Um, and so I, you know, I was just totally, totally overwhelmed that, you know, people seem to, you know, want to read it and were receptive of the story. Well, it certainly went better than your early forays into poetry, didn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah it did. It did. It did. It definitely did. It should though. It should. Hopefully, you know, I was twenty back then. You know, you know, it's funny. I was at a party about a, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago. It was a Howard Homecoming party before, um, you know, COVID and everything. And there was a guy there who knew me back in Baltimore when I used to be a rapper, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, yeah, this is my man, such and such. You know, he knew me back in the day. I was trying to be. Obviously, one of my friends was like, "Huh? Was he any good?" <laughs> and the guy said, he's a much better writer. <laughs> well, it's good to have people who've known you long enough not to be it is. not to be that influenced by you. Exactly a That's year right. ago, exactly a year ago on this show, we were having our very first conversation about the coronavirus. By then, only mm. a couple dozen cases had been reported in the Washington region. Region, what are what are you taking away from this year, and how has it been for you? Um, well, it's funny because I started out, and I I, uh, I haven't really said this, but I you know I, I it was a very interesting situation because when when you know it first happened, you know I was in a very very different spot than I you know usually have been when these kind of catastrophes hit. In New York, you know, my time in New York has you know been just a one crazy event after the other, you know, be it 9-11, you know, be it, you know, the blackout in 2003, be it Hurricane Sandy. I mean, it's been just this constant, just waiting on the alien invasion now. And for the first time in my life, you know, I actually had, you know, was in this rather privileged or relatively privileged position where, you know, I could have left and had this long conversation with my wife about, you know, whether we should leave or whether we should stay and ultimately decided to stay. Um, because I think that's what writers are supposed to do, at least in my head. You know what I mean? I don't want to, you know, make an assessment for other people. But for me, I felt like as a writer, there was something to actually staying and experiencing and, and, and trying to bear witness. And I actually thought, oh, OK, at the end of this, I'll have some sort of essay or whatever. But probably about, I guess, by summer, I realized that I wasn't going to have an essay. And the reason why I wasn't going to have an essay is because um, we're living in a time right now where as a good buddy of mine, um, 
Adam Sarwis said, you know, writes writes for the Atlantic, DC native too, by the way. Um, mm. as, as he said, you know, this is this is a great time for writing, but it's not a great time for quote unquote writers. By which he meant, this is not the moment for folks folks to chin stroke and opine. But it's a great moment for us to go out and do our job and find stories and listen to people. And so that that's really, you know, I can't say too much about this, but that's really what I'm in the process of doing, you know, in terms of, you know, COVID, um, doing, doing, doing a lot of that. You know, it was the same thing, with, you know, this summer, you know, uh, with Vanity Fair when I edited the issue. You know, I, I really thought I was going to go to Louisville and come back with this long, you know, essay about um, the police and the black community and everything. And at the end of the day, what it turned out was the, you know, um, what was most probably important was the voice of, you know, the folks that were going through it down there. Yeah. yeah. So I've been doing a lot of listening, Kojo. That's really the bottom line. That's my job, actually. Um, <laughs> between, yeah. between the world and me is a letter to your son. And at least on one level, a meditation on black parenting. Oh, by the way, I got to tell you a story. A couple of years ago, we were doing something called Kojo Pop-Ups. And one of the places I was popping mm. up was in Ubers and Lyfts. And we picked, <laughs> we picked up some young men in the vicinity of Howard University. And uh-huh. only one of them really agreed to be interviewed. The other was reluctant. And when we were Taking the young man, he was going downtown to a restaurant. We said, where are you going? He said, I'm taking my cousin, who's a freshman at Howard University, to lunch. And I am a senior and I'm graduating, so I'm just going to school him a little bit. And mm-hmm. as, he, as he was getting out of the Uber, he pointed out that his young cousin was your son. Okay? <laughs> so, ah! <laughs> who I never got to meet on that occasion. Cause, it's hilarious. Yes, yes. How has parenting wow. how has parenting been for you through this incredibly difficult year? Uh not as hard as it's been for um I think my son. I mean I, I don't you know, it's not actually been difficult. I don't have kids at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are people who, you know, I mean, this goes back to what we what we just talked about in terms of listening. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, I would not have wanted to be 20 or 21 right now. It's a lot easier to be 45, I'll tell you that, um, and not have kids. You know, um, I don't have school-age children. I don't, you know, have to worry about that. I, I know that's been a struggle. Um, I think about people, you know, who really are not, quote, unquote, of means, you know what I mean? Who have, you know, kids that they've had to, you know, deal with and, you know, the challenge ar- around work. Honestly, you know, I- I've had a lot of time to reflect. I think, you know, it's obviously been difficult not, you know, to not be able to see my son face to face much. Um, that's That's been hard. You know, you, you know, I miss him like any, you know, parent misses their child. But um, I think there are people who are way, way more challenged than me, you know, uh, around that in terms of parenting. Our guest is Tanahasi Coates. Let's go to Chris in Northwest DC. Chris, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, thank you, Gojo. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, yeah, this is uh, huge. I just happened to turn the radio on, uh, and uh, the Tennessee was your guest today. Uh, I, I have uh, between the world and me, in a very uh, close place, right beside my my bedside, and I frequently. Uh, refer to it, read back to it, you know, and I have the Vanity Fair that he edited, you know, and I, I really think this is a watershed time for people. You know, I'm I'm non-black, but I write, I've got two unpublished screenplays which uh, have multi, you know, racial situations, and I've always tried uh, to 
look at it, I've been writing and I've had a lot of small stuff published over the years. And, and from a non-racial point of view, I just think it's quite possible, you know, even before Black Lives Matter became a watchword, you know, that we could look at people from their own humanity rather than from their racial typecasting. You know, of course, there's many times, you know, in books like Maya Angelou's work and stuff, you know, identified directly with an African-American character. But when you're writing about characters who are black, but it doesn't have to, you know, always say... Got to gotta interrupt, Chris, because we, we have to take a short break. But when we come back, I'll have Tanahasi respond to that because he says race is the child of racism, not the father. I'll ask him to explain that. I'm Kojo Nandi. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Welcome back. Our guest is ta Coates, journalist and the author of several books, including The Beautiful Struggle Between the World and Me and We Were Eight Years in Power. In 2019, he published his first novel, The Water Dancer. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. ta when we took that break, our caller seemed to be suggesting that you can see past race into the, human, into the humanity of people you're writing about. He describes himself as non-black and, as I said, seems to feel that he can write about a variety of characters of different races races without necessarily seeing race to which you say what uh i mean i i don't i don't know that uh you need to see past race to see somebody's humanity um people are not the situation that they're in you know um you mentioned that quote from the book race is the uh, the child of racism not the father and the point of that you know the reason why i wrote that in that way is to you know um highlight the fact that race is a done thing. It's not something that's in somebody's bones. It's not some something that, you know, is simply a matter of someone's, you know, hair texture or, or hue. It's, it's, it's a done thing. It's the result of a process. And so um, I, I don't need to see past um, the fact that somebody is, you know, say impoverished to see their humanity. I don't need to see, the, see past the fact that somebody's wealthy to see their humanity or to see past you know, the fact that somebody's British or Japanese or South African or, 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 or whatever, these are, in fact, um, part of the things that make us human, you know, in, in the first place. It's our, you know, differences, our, our, our uniqueness, the, the way we grapple with particular situations. So, I, you know, I, I never saw um, or never quite understood how or why one had to see past the, the situation of being raced as black in order to see somebody's uh, uh, humanity, uh, you know, so I'm I, I'm not quite clear on that. I don't know that the two are in contradiction. In you know, between... I don't even see past like the Holocaust to see the humanity, you know, uh, uh, demonstrated, you know, by say Jews in, in, in that period. 
In Between the World and Me, you write, Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined, indubitable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone-deep features to people and then humiliate, reduce, and destroy them, inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. In this way, racism is rendered as the innocent daughter of Mother Nature, and one is left to deplore the middle passage or trail of tears the way one deplores an earthquake, a tornado, or any other phenomenon that can be cast as beyond the handiwork of men. I read that by way of explaining a little farther what you just said. Care to mm -hmm. expand on it? Yeah, I mean, I, this is like the sort of the the, the quote unquote diversity analysis of, of of racism, which holds that you know there are different biological races that exist in the world. There's a a black race that comes out of Africa. There's a white race that comes out of Europe. There's a you know apparently a Hispanic and Latino race you know, uh, that originates, you know, here in the Americas, there's a, uh, Asian race, you know, that, that, that originates in, in Asia. And, and what we need to do is to figure out how we can allow for all of these people to live, uh, together and be represented, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the various corridors of power or equally throughout society. And what between the world and me argues in fact is that that's not true. And uh, historically that, that, that hasn't been true that who we decide, you know, belongs to a, a certain race is all about power and usually about, you know, an attempt to take something from somebody. Uh, what I mean by this is the description of, for instance, if we just take black people, description of, of, of who is black and who is not is a description that varies across time and, and, and geography. Um, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, certainly, you know, sitting right now in, you know, New York City here in America, I'm an African-American. But, you know, if this were, uh, uh, I don't know, 200, 250 years ago and I was in New Orleans, you know, it might be something different. If I were in Haiti, it might be something different. If I were living in Brazil right now, it might be something different. And the reason for that is because, you know, race differs according to power and the need um, and the means by which usually you deprive people of things. Uh, and so our notion of race is heavily tied to the one drop rule. The one drop rule in turn was formulated in order to not, you know, intercede or not interrupt the ability of white men to exploit uh, the bodies of, of black women sexually and dilute the, uh, the, the, uh, the labor pool. So by which, you know, you could continue to, you know, rape black women and not have to worry about freeing the progeny, you know, of, of those encounters. You know, um, and so you could have as many people as possible that could, you know, potentially be enslaved. Um, our history and our notion of who is black is directly tied to that. It's nothing natural about that. You know, it has nothing, you know, particularly to do with, you know, how somebody, you know, looks necessarily only insofar as it enables you to take as much as possible. And I think that's important to remember, because if it's done, it means it can be undone. Between the World and Me was adapted for television. Can you talk about how that came about and what it was like adapting a book like that, written in letter form for TV? Yeah, it came about by me getting out of the way. That was the most <laughs> important part. You know, uh, my good friend Camila Forbes, who I met in D.C. at Howard University, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, authors, when they, you know, hand their work over to be adapted, they're deeply concerned that, you know, the work be uh, uh, um, portrayed on screen in the same way that, you know, it appeared on the page. And, and for me, it was just much more important to trust the person that was adapt adapting it um, and then let that person go and do what they did. You know, and having seen, you know, what, what Camilla uh, did, um, 
you know, originally when it was, you know, uh, on stage and performed here in New York and then down in D.C. at the Kennedy Center, um, I, I fully trusted her to, to go ahead and, and adapt it uh, on screen. And I just think she did a wonderful job. Here is Maggie in Silver Spring, Maryland. Maggie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Um, hi there. Thanks for having me. It's so cool to hear the both of you in conversation. Um, Mr. Coates, my question is for you about The Water Dancer. I'm an AP literature teacher, um, and in the past, I've taught Toni Morrison's Beloved. I read The Water Dancer kind of on my own, um, and I felt like I saw a lot of connections between the two works. I was just curious, you know, what would you, what would you, what would you say to that? I feel like Beloved and Water Dancer are in conversation, um, but how often do you actually get to ask one of the authors themselves? So. Tanahasi? So... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that question. So the first thing I would say is um, things can be in conversation, even if they aren't in direct conversation. So you take somebody like Toni Morrison, who lords over the field <laughs> of, of, of modern American letters and, 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 and a, you know, a, a black author and a black woman author who lords, you know, over the field and is, you know, written, I think what, what we would all consider the best, you know, novel you know, about enslavement ever written. It would be impossible for the water dancer to not be in conversation. Uh, 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 you know, with, with, with beloved. That's that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing I would say is, um, you know, having gone to Howard University, you know, having you know almost literally walked in the footsteps of of, of Toni Morrison. Um, it, again, it would be very very hard for me to not like I would have to actively work to not be influenced by her. Uh, and the third thing I'll say is, even you know, um, despite that, even despite the passive influence. Um, I, I don't. There are very few writers whose ability to basically form sentences um, I admire more than I admire Toni Morrison. Um, I just think you know, and and this gets lost. You know what I mean? Because I think um, because of her persona, you know, what I mean, I think because of how much her, her work ultimately meant to black people, particularly to black women. Um, I think because of those beautiful gray flowing dreadlocks <laughs> she sported, <laughs> you know, in her, in her lashes, you know, people forget that, you know, the, the job of writing is, you know, really, you know, like, you know, laying bricks, you know what I mean? It's the job of, you know, just putting something together. It's a, it's a, it's a job of building things. And, 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 and there weren't too many, you know, um, more immaculate builders than, than Toni Morrison. Um, so just, in, you know, the, the construction of sentences and, and, and the usage of language to, to paint a world and portray a world, um, there are not too many people who are more influential on me. Maggie, thank you very much for your call. We first have to take this short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Tanahasi Coates. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back. Our guest is journalist and author Tanahasi Coates. Here is Rick in Florida. Rick, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. How is everybody? Doing well, thank you. I I read uh, through Marvel Unlimited, so I'm six months behind, and I just wanted to know, with all that you're doing, are you still writing Captain America? Tanahasi. 
I'm so happy somebody called to ask me about comics. <laughs> yes, I am. I was working on it this morning. I literally, like, before I got on, on the horn, I was working on Captain America. Yeah, which has um, been, um, you know, obviously I really enjoyed Black Panther, but, you know, it's it's been very, very interesting, you know, to to, to write a Captain America. I said this um, when, I, when I first took on the task, um, because I think for a lot of people it looked a little weird that I would write a comic book like that. But, you know, like writing... It's like acting, you know, you don't um, go and write the character and try to make the character do, you know, what you would do or agree with you. You know, you try to really inhabit, inhabit the role, you know, um, and, and think about how the character has been written and get a, you know, a strong, you know, take on them and, 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 and then go in. And so I've, I've, I've really, really enjoyed Captain America. Thank you for your call. Rick Candace tweets, can you ask Nanahasi to comment about the state of newsrooms that are still not diversifying in spite of all the outcry heard around the country? How can journalists create a revolution? You know what? I'm kind of out of it. I really am. You know, I um, after 10 really great years at The Atlantic, I left um, and... You know, I've I've seen, you know, some of the headlines and everything, but I I, I am so happy to not be involved in some of these debates. I, I don't know what happened uh, over. Well, I do kind of know what happened. I think over the past four years, I think the very presence of Donald Trump really, you know, um, changed the nature of a lot of debates and they became um, it's become much more. I don't know. It's a hard world. It's a really, really hard world. And I'm just happy to not be in the newsroom right now. You wrote in, which is not to say I've given up journalism. I have not done that, but I'm just happy to be outside of this. You wrote in the case for reparations. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. Reparations would mean the end of scarfing hot dogs on the Fourth of July while denying the facts of our heritage. Reparations would mean the end of yelling patriotism while waving a Confederate flag. I could go on, but I got to ask you, what did you make of the January 6th insurrection and the images that emerged from it of conspiracy theorists and Confederate flag-waving white supremacists storming the Capitol? I thought it made sense. I mean, I thought it made sense. I mean, I think, um, look, if you convince the majority uh, of, of one of America's two major parties that the election was stolen. I see elections are how we, you know, resolve our politics nonviolently. And if you've told them that the election for the highest office in the country was stolen, what do you expect them to do? Um, it, 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 you know, and I, I think we lose sight of this. Like um, you've breached a contract and I'm saying, from you know, from the from from the from the Republican perspective, you breached a contract about democratic governance, and you've tipped into dictatorship. Why would there be a nonviolent response to that? I'm just I'm 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 not really clear on that. And why would there be a nonviolent response, given what we've seen this summer, in terms of plotting the kidnapping of you know a governor in Michigan, literally shutting down? you know, uh, the legislature in, in Michigan. So um, you you have a, a party that, you know, at least among its, you know, most zealous ad- advocates fetishizes guns and thus fetishizes violence. You had the president of the United States at the time repeat on the very day, 
mere minutes, you know, before the Capitol was stormed, that the election was stolen. I, I, I don't know what people expected to happen. You know, Rudy Giuliani said, you know, let, let's have trial by combat. Well, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so I, I think a lot of times, you know, we're, we're shocked by things that we really shouldn't be shocked by. You know, a white supremacist who was president of the United States was telling his people that this was not a democratic election. I, I don't know what the response to that would be besides violence. Um, right. And so, go ahead, Coach. I'm sorry. Are you, are you surprised by uh, Trump's continued dominance of the Republican Party? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, look, I, I don't want to be mean here, um, but I think there are people who are kind of deluding themselves, uh, who believe that the racism and the bigotry, the, the Willie Hortonism, um, the going to the Neshoba County Fair, and, and, and talking up states' rights, uh, the, the welfare queen aspect of, of our politics, the, the, the rumor mongering about John McCain having a, 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 a black daughter, uh, the, the uh, birtherism, the claim that Obama was a secret you know, Muslim. I, I think there are people in our society who like to believe that that was somehow a sideshow you know, for our politics. Um, and what is being revealed now is, I think, something that the people who have, you know, been victims, you know, have been on the other side of that calculus have always known. No, this this is the main stage. This is the main stage. You know what I mean? It, it's the, the fiscal uh, 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 conservatism. That was actually the sideshow. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was the thing that you got. But the way you got people to show up, it was always the racism. It was always the white supremacy. It was always that. And... You know, that quickly has been made, was made apparent when Donald Trump defeated the entire field in the Republican primary in 2016. And at this very moment retains his hold on, 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 on the party. I mean, how, how else do you explain it? You know, if and I think I've written this before, if it is a case, as I've argued, that white supremacy is one of the core uh, uh, elements of this country's history and, and remains, you know, a powerful force in this country's politics at this very, to this very day. Why would Trump then be surprising? Trump is the natural result of it. Um, and so, no, I, you know, I, I think we got a huge problem here on our hands. Indeed, there are people who go back to President Reagan's announcement of his candidacy in the 1980 election in Philadelphia, That's Mississippi. Right. That, That's right. Where the places were Goodwin, Shorn, and Cheney were killed in the civil rights movement. That's right. That that sent a certain kind of signal that the Republican Party has been on that course ever since. You seem you're saying that's right. You agree? I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I com- I completely agree. And and as I was saying, I think there are people who thought this was kind of a, a a distraction or just something that you know really had nothing to do with the core messaging. And you know what they're finding out is no, this this was the core. This was always the core. The last time you joined us on the show, it was 2017 and a very different transitional period from Obama to Trump. Now it's Trump to Biden. How are you feeling in this moment with Biden in the White House compared to back then? Probably better than I expected to feel. <laughs> um, okay. Well, you know, I've, you know, I don't think it's any secret. I've been pretty critical of, of Joe Biden. Uh, but mm-hmm. this has been a, a reminder to me. 
you know, about something. And this is like why I hate pro- doing any sort of prognostication because I'm so often wrong, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but if you ask me about how I'm feeling right now, um, what has been a reminder to me is that a president is not merely, you know, a, a set of individual beliefs. It's a reflection of their coalition. And so the Democratic Party has clearly moved to the left as you know, a result of, I would argue, uh, the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, the emergence of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a strong, strong protest movement in the streets represented you know, most um, um, trenchantly by, by Black Lives Matter. Um, and just, I guess, you know, polarization is happening at, at, at large. And so you have a Democratic Party that's moved, you know, further to the left. And I think um, Biden's presidency so far is a reflection of that. You know, a buddy of mine, you know, uh, would often say that, you know, if you look at, you know, Joe Biden's career, he's exactly where the middle of the Democratic Party is. And the middle of the Democratic Party is further left now than probably any time than, you know, my living memory. Allow me to allow others into this conversation. Here sure. is Teodros in Alexandria, Virginia. Teodros, your turn. Uh, good afternoon, Kojo. I've been a long-time listener. Um, and uh, thank you uh, for, for having me on the show. Um, just want to say, first and foremost, to uh, Mr. Coates, um, you know, I, there's a lot of areas of uh, disagreement. But I'm trying to come at this in a respectful way uh, because none of us have these uh, these things figured out. But uh, I think for me, the major area of uh, disagreement that I have with uh, Mr. Coates is the fact that he delineates, clearly delineates, uh, neatly delineates racism to make it seem like it's about the left versus right or uh, Republicans versus Democrats when the system of racism is, encompasses the whole of our governance. And Democrats are just as culpable as Republicans when it comes to these things. Obama uh, bombed more brown folks than Bush did uh, during his eight uh, years in, uh, in office. And so, and even now to this day, uh, during, during Obama's administration, during Clinton's administration, uh, black wealth was, you know, was decimated. And then well, allow me like, to oh, allow me to allow me to interrupt for a second because you seem to be saying that Tanya Hasi Coates is a committed Democrat. He has written on all of these issues, and if you think that he is simply a committed follower of the Democratic Party, I'll allow him to respond for himself. Tanya Hasi. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the question. I, I think that's that's not quite correct. I mean, I think if you read the case for reparations, I mean, a large chunk of that is actually about the Democratic Party and the New Deal. Um, and how they sold black people out in order to, you know, to, to pass the, uh, the New Deal. Um, I think during, not I think, I know during Obama's time out, you know, I wrote about uh, the drone killings, uh, you know, on my blog at The Atlantic. I wrote, you know, very frequently about, you know, how Obama addressed African-Americans. I was referencing earlier, you know, my, my critique of, of Joe Biden, you know, which I've been very, very public about. And a lot of that goes back to, you know, his role in mass incarceration um, and my feelings about that and how he handled that and being of that generation you know, folks who, who had to, you know, endure that. And so um, I don't, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I have a set of politics and when, you know, actions or, or laws or policies are passed, you know, that I think, you know, are in line with, you know, my particular politics, you know, by certain people, you know, I, I tend to say so. Um, and when they're not, you know, I try to say so also, you know, um, so no, I, 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 you know, I think we are at a particular moment where the Democratic Party, I'm sorry, where African Americans have more purchase and more power within the Democratic Party 
than they've probably had within any major party since, I would say, Reconstruction or so. So that, you know, if you go to the South, you find, you know, you know, basically the Republican Party is a white party and the Democratic Party tends to be, you know, pretty, pretty diverse. Um, but I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I don't I don't ascribe any particular like I see the party as a vehicle. And the people who are, you know, in, in, in power, you know, whatever coalition that is, you know, can, you know, advance the policies that they advance. But um, I certainly don't, you know, uh, uh, um, see myself as one that's here to say, that, you know, that the history of, Demo- of the Democratic Party, you know, is one of openness and, you know, anti-racism. Teodros, does that answer your question? Teodros, are you there? Can you, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. No, I just want to just add on to what he said about the fact that we have more purchase and power within the Democratic Party than, than in his lifetime. I, I, I vehemently push back against that just because, you know, there, there's one thing to participate, but participation does not lead to power. Uh, they have what, what attention has Biden paid to any of our concerns, any of our issues since he's been in office? I know the first thing that he did was... Well, Teodros, Teodros, we don't have a great deal of time. What is your own political posture? What is your own political posture? Do you vote? Uh, Well, yes. Well, so initially I was a big-time Obama supporter. In fact, uh, you know, I I, I traveled to over 16 states volunteering for him, and and, and I wrote a speech idea that was... Okay, but I, I I do understand that you're disappointed in Obama, but my question was, did you vote in the last election? Uh, no, I didn't vote in the last election. I, I okay. see elections gotcha. for what they gotcha. are now. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. But thank you very much for sharing that with us. I do have to move on to Vivian in Falls Church, Virginia. Vivian, your turn. Thank you, Kojo. Um, my question, I haven't yet read the book, but I was wondering if Tan Hasi has read uh, Charles Blow's The Devil You Know and if he has any reflections on Mr. Blow's views of you know, acquiring and maintaining So wait a minute, power. Vivian, Vivian, you're going to wait until you hear what ta has to say before you decide <laughs> if you're going to read the book, <laughs> whether you're going to read the book or not. Okay. No, I'm okay. going But, but I, okay. just, I mean, I've heard some discussions hmm. that the author yeah. has given, you know, uh, and yeah. I'd like to hear if he has any thoughts on it, if he's read it, what he thinks of, you know, how you acquire power in the states uh, where, you know, these legislatures yeah. are doing all these crazy things. Yeah, no, I, ahead, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. And I have to say, like, I, 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 I resent when people who have not read my book, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about, you know, me, you know, the person who would be sitting in my chair. Um, but I, I deeply resent when people opine on my work and they haven't read it yet. So I haven't read his. So I, I would not be justice to Charles Blow for me to opine on, on his work, having not read it yet. Um, I, I do, if I could, just want to address the, the last question. I think there was a very pointed sure. point made about what has and again you know look you can go back and look at my record i was you know pretty critical of biden in the primary but we just i mean like just passed uh and this is just one thing this is one thing we just passed a uh uh an act which will offer a guaranteed income at least for this year uh for american families with children regardless of you know income or whatever that's going to be huge for black people like that's a, that's an actual you know thing. That's a very very you know real tangible policy that just happened. Um, you know, in the, uh, and, and that was and, and I think it's important to to be really clear about how that happened. That would not have been possible 
without the political strength which black people showed in Georgia, organized as you know most people know by by Stacey Abrams and 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 the, you know the election of John Ossoff and, and, and Raphael Warner, it was black people that did that. You know, and I don't know how you look at that policy. And I'm all for critique, you know what I mean? But I don't know how you look at, you know, a guaranteed family income and say that 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 won't, you know, matter. I've spent, you know, not to talk too much about this, but I've spent the past couple of weeks, you know, interviewing black and brown people, you know, affected by, by COVID and East Elmhurst and, 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 and Corona Queens. And I'm going to tell you, like, this matters. Like, that money matters, you know? And, and you know, just because you, you know, vote for somebody I don't think that means that you no longer, you know, critique them or, you know, talk about what's wrong or, or what's right. But, you know, I don't think you have to be a Biden shill, you know, or a Democratic shill to, to admit that, that that's a policy that really, really will matter. I don't know how you look at, you know, a, you know, a young parent struggling over the past year of what we've been through and say the government is now going to send them a monthly check for the next year. And you look at them, and you say that doesn't matter or that's nothing or what has this person done? I think we got to be really, you know, straight and grounded, you know, when we offer our critiques. Here is Tim in Washington, D.C. Tim, your turn. Yeah, it's a great pleasure, uh, Kojo and uh, Tony Hoxie Coates. Um, man, it's been seven years. Can you believe that since the uh, the uh, article in the Atlantic Monthly uh, Case for Reparations 2014? Um, that uh, article, uh, I was really, I've been reading Atlantic Monthly for over, 30 years now. But that article, I remember when it first came out, I was very surprised it was in Atlantic Monthly because Atlantic Monthly uh, paradoxically has a very um, long history as being one of the oldest magazines in America. And it has its own historical uh, grievances with race (laughs) in itself. So when it came out, I thought that was a strange paradox that they were actually put that in the uh, Atlantic Monthly. I was very surprised by that, but kudos to them. Um, has it been any other um, writers that have come along that is up and coming that can take your place in the Atlantic Monthly? Thank you for that. Y'all have a good day. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really, you know, I'll start with the top of that question. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're very, very right. And the Atlantic, you know, uh, Monthly certainly has its own you know, disreputable history. You know, it was a magazine that, that was founded um, on the cause of abolition, you know, but certainly, you know, over the course of its history, it is, you know, printed, you know, some, you know, its share of, you know, disreputable stuff when it, you know, particularly on the issue of, of race and racism. So I understand that, you know, um, in addition to its share of honorable stuff, I should be, you know, fair about that. One of the things that I do think certainly happened by the time uh, of the end of my tenure there is, you know, I, I came in um, basically at, you know, the only black writer there. Um, and I never was particularly comfortable with that. <laughs> and one of the things that made me happy after the, the 10 years of, of, after I left was the fact that I felt like there were a number of people, you know what I mean? There who, um, you know, I don't know if they could, you know, take my place in the sense that, you know, I don't even, you know, believe that we should, you know, necessarily be compared. What I'll say is there were a number of formidable black writers there by the time I, you know, I left, whether it was, you know, uh, 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 you know, Van Newkirk or, 
Adam Harris or, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Adam Sura, who I think is just absolutely, you know, incredible. Um, I think all of, you know, all of these folks are, you know, incredible. Jillian White, who was in management by the time I, I left, there was a squad, there was a squad. And so I, you know, I, I felt really, really good about that. I felt like, look, if I left, you know, this, this, this magazine is not going to have any trouble at all. You know, cover, you know, covering you know the, the issues, the kind of issues that I covered before, and I don't think it has. I think they've done a you know a, a great job. Clint Smith, we just got brought in there. Um, I know Ibram Kendi is writing for the Atlantic now, um, and so you know, I, I felt I, I felt great, you know, about leaving at, at that point because I felt like you know they they had done you know such a good job of bringing folks in. Chris in DC emails. I have a few framed Tanahasi Washington City Paper stories at home. I was commissioned by Washington. <laughs> I, I was commissioned by Washington City Paper to illustrate them. Can he comment on how his voice has changed since those City Paper stories and how it has stayed the same? Oh man, well that was twenty five years ago. So I hope Ooh. I got a little better. Yeah, it's been a second. I started. I started at City Paper in nineteen ninety six. I was twenty years old. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, and so. I hope I got a little better, but you know, I have to tell you, I have never had a, a production process. When you used to, you know, get a cover story in a Washington City paper, it was a whole thing. You, know, you used to have to go out and buy beer for the whole staff and everything, and <laughs> everybody would sit around and drink, and then they would order food, and you would you would eat, and you would watch them, you know, go through the whole process of of, of putting the paper together and putting the paper to bed, and. Working with the photographers, you know, working with the great Daryl Montgomery, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, to get these, you know, beautiful, you know, pictures that we would have. I mean, it was a, it was an education. I mean, you to not have even graduated from college you know, <laughs> at that point and to be going through that. I mean, to be basically, a, you know, a twenty years old, a twenty one years old, and a working journalist going through the entire process, the copy editing process, you know, being under, you know, the tutelage of Eric Wimple, of you know, David Carr. You know, having, you know, those 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 great Brad McKee having great editors, you know, at that point, having, you know, the colleagues, you know, I had uh, John Cloud, rest in peace, um, you know, uh, Amanda Ripley, Jason Cherkis, having that, you know, squad of reporters around me. I mean, I, I could not imagine it was almost as good as going to college. I mean, there, there really are two institutions that formed me and the first, you know, obviously being Howard University, you know, and the second being Washington city paper and being in the city of DC itself. So I guess I have to, you know, give the city itself, you know, it's own, you know, it's credit. Um, that was just such a great time. I mean, it really, really was. And about the minute or so we have left Rob tweets, what advice do you have for young graduates that have now to build back this country and this world better after post COVID-19? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to be very disappointing there because as I was mentioned, I dropped out of school. So I have very little advice to, <laughs> to give, you know, graduates. They probably know more than me at that point in their lives. You know, they're probably more on the ball than I was. All I knew when I left, when I dropped out, was that I really, really wanted to write. Maybe that's important. Maybe it's important that, you know, if you can find something that you're deeply, deeply passionate about, you know, to find that thing and to, you know, try to do it in a, in a, in a just and, you know, humane way. Well, it is my understanding, my knowledge, that you have a child in college. It is my hope that he graduates. It's my hope, too, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Tanahasi Coates is a journalist and the author of several books, including The Beautiful Struggle Between the World and Me, and We Were Eight Years in Power. In 2019, he published his first novel, The Water Dancers. He's the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Tanahasi continues to try to stay safe and continue to do the work you're doing. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Kojo. 
Today's conversation with Tanahasi Coates was produced by Julie Deppenbrock. Coming up tomorrow on the show, the pandemic forced museums across the district to adapt in ways many could never have imagined. Visitors across the country now visit galleries and collections virtually. How are museums sustaining themselves and their connections to the public when relatively few people are coming through their doors? That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.